You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. A bit of a frightening situation for passengers on board a BC ferry this afternoon when their journey came to a sudden stop. Imadagahi is live at Tawasan Ferry Terminal where the spirit of British Columbia has finally made it to dock. Imad with some rattled passengers. Describe what happened. Yeah, some startling moments on what is supposed to be a routine afternoon sailing between southern Vancouver Island and the mainland, causing about a two-hour delay out at open sea and some concern for some passengers. Uh, here is what we've been able to find out in the last couple of hours. Now, this was the spirit of British Columbia, and it was en route from Swartz Bay to Tawasin, and there was an inadvertent release of uh, one of the vessel's anchors. This happened just as the vessel had sailed through active passengers which is the trickiest section of the voyage. Passengers explained feeling uh, the ferry vibrating before it came to a stop. Crew members were also seen running around uh, to investigate. Now, BC Ferry says there was uh, never any danger to the vessel or the passengers on board and after a brief while uh, its crew was successfully able to retrieve the anchor the ferry arrived safely at its destination at around 4 30. Uh, during all of this uh, global news also learned today that joy mcphail the chair of the bc ferries board of directors was on board this sailing we reached her by phone but she was unwilling to comment uh, and, and give us any further details here's how other passengers explained the ordeal all of a sudden, the loudest sound started rattling, and the people at the front of the window could see that the chain, the anchor, was let, letting loose, the starboard anchor. And they, everyone got up, which alarmed everyone behind them, which alarmed everyone behind them. People were floating to the back of the ship, and the anchor just dropped. And then you could feel it hit the ocean floor, and then it just dragged. And uh, we felt the tugs until finally it brought us to a grinding halt. Now, the spirit of BC, the vessel in question here, had a full schedule of sailings and saw two cancellations this afternoon, but the vessel is back online and good to go for tonight and tomorrow morning. Scary moments for some, definitely, tonight. Sounds like it. All right, Ahmad, thanks very much. Now, with more snow in the forecast for tonight, Metro Vancouver drivers are even more on edge than usual. That's right, hoping that municipalities and road maintenance crews can help avoid a repeat of Tuesday night's disaster. Travis Prasad reports. Three days after Tuesday's snowstorm, this ill-fated taxi in South Surrey serves as a grim reminder of a nightmarish commute. Total gridlock on the highways. Cars spun out. Bridges closed, half-hour commutes turning into hours-long crawls. In anticipation of more snow, the city of Surrey has 54 pieces of equipment on the streets. Crews are salting and sanding, but there are no major changes to their approach, even after Tuesday's chaos. I think regionally everyone's stepping back and, and taking a look at how we can do better, uh, as we do with all events. Tuesday was an, more of a unique event came uh, during the, the rush hour. Um, this event is a little bit later in the day, so each event's different. City crews in Vancouver also busy preparing for snow. So busy, no one was available for an interview. TransLink says it's ready to call in more staff to coordinate service and increase capacity on the SkyTrain. When it comes to the buses, the bus driver's union says their vehicles are winter ready despite not having snow tires. It was a very bad experience for our uh, members out there. Union President Balbir Mann says the problem on Tuesday was a slow response in cities like Surrey and Vancouver. 
With a lot of winter still to come, the union says municipalities need a better plan. If the roads are not cleaned, uh, salted properly, or they have this new uh, chemical they spray it on, if it's, that's not done properly, it, I mean, it doesn't matter with the tires. Meanwhile, drivers are being reminded of their own snow removal responsibilities. Vancouver police sharing this photo of a van being driven with a windshield blanketed in snow. A careless act only making the winter roads even more dangerous. Travis Prasad, Global News. Well, this one has been tricky to forecast, so senior meteorologist Christy Gordon is here now with details on the timeline. Christy. Well, Sophie, the main band of precipitation is starting to move in. It's across Vancouver Island right now. But if you have a look at this image, you'll see a wide range in temperature. Victoria at 5 degrees with periods of rain. They're seeing some snow in the Malahat and up towards Comox, where it is colder in the inland areas. And that band is tracking towards our region, where, again, you see a wide range in temperature. So we'll see anywhere from rain to a mix of rain and snow to snowfall. So 0 to 6 centimeters still possible this evening. It is starting to push in, although it's as you can see here where I am right now, it is still dry, but uh, we're still anticipating some moisture. Back to you. All right. We'll talk to you in a bit. Thanks, Christy. BC parents are getting more relief from childcare costs. Funding for licensed childcare centers announced back in September kicked in this week, cutting fees for some parents by nearly half. And as Kylie Stanton reports, the province got some help from the feds to expand the number of $10 a day childcare spaces. For some parents playing the daycare lottery game, this feels like hitting the jackpot. With this amazing initiative, my family will now be saving over $1,000 a month. But the childcare saving odds are getting better and better. Savings of hundreds of dollars every month on childcare is a game changer. The province, in partnership with the federal government, doubling down on their goal of $10 a day childcare adding another 2,450 spaces to the program this month. Today is a reminder of what happens when uh, different orders of government get to work together. What started out as a pilot project has continued to grow, with $10 a day spaces now being offered at 61 centres throughout BC. In April of this year, there were 6,500 spots, with more being added by the month, bringing the current total to more than 10,500. What's expected to expand even further by February of 2023, with 12,500 dedicated spaces. We're very much on track to delivering that commitment to $10 a day childcare by 2026. But advocates say while the expansion of the program is good news, it's equally important to recruit and retain those providing the care. One of the first steps we think they could do to keep people that are, are working in early, early childhood education is introduce a wage grid for, for us as a profession. Unlicensed providers are not eligible for the $10 a day program or the recently announced fee reduction initiative. But the province says 97% of licensed providers have opted in, significantly reducing their fees. The savings coming from the $3.2 billion Canada-BC Early Learning Child Care Agreement. And the fact that families in this province are going to be saving up to $6,000 a year is real money in real pockets of real Canadians. And in a year full of rising costs, it couldn't come at a better time. Kylie Stanton, Global News.
Well, it took the pandemic to make virtual doctor visits mainstream, but Ontario is taking a step back from the practice, reducing the fees it pays to physicians for each appointment. Here in BC, however, virtual care appears to be here to stay. But as Richard Zussman reports, at what cost? In and out. For much of the past few years, British Columbians have gone from seeing doctors like this to seeing doctors like this. Virtual health care. Virtual care has a lot of advantages in our system and that's why we're working so closely to, to make clinical decisions about this issue in the best interest of patients and in everyone else. It's nice to see you. Earlier this week, changes came into effect in Ontario, reducing the amount doctors get paid for virtual visits. Minor assessments were set at $37 a visit, now down to $20 for a video session and $15 for a phone call. The doctors of BC and the BC government are currently discussing whether changes are needed here. Well, what we need is uh, to apply standards to those vi virtual visits that protect the interests of patients and ensure people get the care that they need. The reliance on virtual medicine has soared during the pandemic. Last April, nearly one and a half million virtual visits took place to doctors in BC, compared to 1.2 million in-person visits. October, it was 1.25 million virtual, 1.4 million in person. Omicron swung the balance in January with more virtual than in-person visits. And then the latest data shows a little more than a million virtual visits in July compared to 1.3 million in person. We want to make sure that what we're achieving is the kind of health care that, that really benefits people. Rocket Doctor is an Ontario-based company that links doctors to patients, typically outside regular clinic hours and virtually. The company has 60 to 70 doctors working in BC. We know from surveying our patients that 33% of all patients we've seen would have gone to emergency had we not been available. 50% would have gone to a walk-in clinic. It could be months until a decision is made whether seeing a doctor like this is worth the same as staring at one through a camera on a laptop. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Well, after more than two years of living with the COVID-19 pandemic, the B.C. government has now released an independent review of its response to the public health emergency. The big takeaways, B.C. fared pretty well, but the government's communication strategy could have been and should have been a lot better. Keith Baldry joins us now. He's been going through this 140-plus page report dropped <laughs> onto our laps just this afternoon on a Friday. But that's enough about that. What stands out to you in this report? Yeah, it's quite the weighty report, as you say, almost 150 pages here with three consultants, independent report. As you say, Chris, basically a pretty good grade for various measures that we've seen. In fact, this thing reads like a trip down memory lane. Remember all those restrictions, public health orders and such, and all the rules about social contact and such. But again, BC fared fairly good, especially compared to other provinces. Here's some excerpts from the report, uh, starting with the executive summary, saying that overall, despite being unprepared for a province-wide emergency, the government of BC's response to the COVID-19 pandemic was strong and it goes on to use some other adjectives as well to describe them showing resilience balance and nimbleness that should give British Columbians confidence in its ability to respond to future province-wide emergencies you mentioned communication we started out good but then started to falter the approach taken during the initial phase to be calm competent and apolitical was very effective in assaging the fears of the public the later communications breakdowns contributed to an erosion of trust as time went on the public just wanted certainty and we're not 
prepared for continuous change. As a result, many interpreted changes to guidance as evidence of earlier mistakes damaging trust. As I say, some mistakes were made, uh, lessons have been learned, but overall a pretty good finding here from the independent report basically pointed out that we had one of the highest vaccination rates in the country. We kept our schools open. We kept our restaurants open. We had fewer restrictions than other places, and we had better outcomes when it came to COVID numbers and various statistical levels. But there more work could be done, especially on the communications front, should we ever go through something like this again. Well, let's hope we learn from the lessons. All right, Keith Baldry and Victoria, thanks, Keith. DNA evidence was the focus today at the first-degree murder trial of James Lee Bush, accused of killing a chosen man in 2019 after escaping from William Head Prison. As Aaron MacArthur reports, the Crown is using DNA to bolster its case against the accused. The evidence in this trial has been largely circumstantial, but Crown laying out some evidence Friday with a degree of certainty that's hard to fathom. DNA expert Christine Crossman was on the stand Friday. Crown walking the jury through DNA evidence obtained in both Martin Payne's home and in his pickup truck. The jury hearing how blood on a hatchet and knife matched the victims, as well as on shoes and clothing found in the home. The likelihood the DNA came from someone other than Martin Payne would be one in 27 quintillion. That's 18 zeros. The jury also hearing how there were two other DNA profiles found inside Payne's home called unknown male one and male two. DNA from male one was found on a bit of chewing gum and on a cigarette butt, as well as on several pieces of clothing that had Martin Payne's blood on them. Male number two's DNA was found on a pair of New Balance runners. The jury hearing again how the likelihood of the DNA belonging to anyone else would be extremely remote. According to Crossman, those unknown DNA samples do match known samples she was given to compare with. At this point in the trial, the jury hasn't heard who those known profiles belong to. Defense lawyers spent Friday afternoon cross-examining the expert, explaining to the jury that DNA evidence can be transferred to objects without physical contact. Several of the items of clothing where the DNA evidence was located were found in large plastic garbage bags stored together in Payne's home. The trial will resume next week. James Lee Bush stands accused of first-degree murder. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. The challenges of policing seen through a different lens. Why there is talk of equipping Vancouver police with body cameras and what we can learn from other agencies that have tried it. That's next on the News Hour. Hockey Canada forced to take another long look in the mirror, a startling spotlight on racism and discrimination in our favorite game. That's coming up on the News Hour. And speaking of hockey, in sports, Demco goes down. How the team is responding to the latest blow coming up. First, though, the long-debated issue of police body cameras is back in the spotlight in Vancouver. It looks like the city of Vancouver and its police force are open to adopting what can be crucial evidence-gathering technology. Ramina Dea has the latest developments. Next Tuesday, Vancouver City Council will consider the police board's request for $200,000 to undertake a pilot project for officer-worn body cameras. 
This Vancouver case, in which the judge ruled the police started the fight, probably wouldn't have even gone to court if police had body cameras. Counselor Lenny Joe says the cameras would provide transparency, accountability, and savings. Some of the court cases take years to complete. So just imagine how much cost associated with the uh, police investigation, with the legal cost, with the administrative cost, with the labor cost. So, you know, this uh, uh, method is really evidence-based approach. Council will consider a motion next week, which will start the process. We still don't know how much it will cost taxpayers. Voting on the pilot project will be the first step. The RCMP are rolling out roughly 15,000 body cameras for members across Canada at the cost of two to $3,000 a year per camera. Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer has previously stated he supports the cameras as a tool to strengthen public trust. BC's police watch Dog, the IIO also in favor. At the end of the day, we're talking here about faith in our uh, police, faith in our justice system, um, and coming to just conclusions uh, with respect to incidents involving serious harm or death uh, of citizens of our society. It's really hard to put a price on ensuring that um, we are able to get to the truth in those cases as soon as possible. Vancouver's new mayor has promised police body cameras for all frontline officers by the summer of 2025. Romina Dea, Global News. Coming up, exposing members of Iran's Revolutionary Guard. More people are, are realizing that this may pose a security threat to Canada and Canadians. The Coalition of Canadian Lawyers determined to root out the IRGC presence in this country. Traffic is steady in both directions over here tonight at the Lionsgate Bridge. Two lanes north and one south. Just a bit of congestion through the Stanley Park Causeway. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Lionsgate Bridge. A Burnaby lawyer is trying to root out members of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps living in Canada, saying they pose a security threat. In Iran, the IRGC plays a critical role in cracking down on widespread protests in that country. Canada has taken action against the regime, but as Nagar Mojtahedi reports, pressure is growing to do more. This is the um, database of our reports, 111 cases open. BC lawyer Ramin Jubin is on a mission. And then that person will have a business partner, family members, etc. that are involved. We have to uh, investigate all those people. He has joined forces with lawyers across Canada, the U.S. and inside Iran to identify Islamic Republic Revolutionary Guard Corps members and their associates living in Canada. There are a lot of reports about family members of heads of state or people that were high up in the current regime in Iran. They've created a website called StopIRGC.com where people report their findings. They verify and later report cases to government agencies and police. We're seeing a lot of uh, cases alleging uh, money laundering. Ramin has also received reports of threats and intimidation. This as Canada's spy agency says that they've received multiple credible reports of death threats against Iranian-Canadian activists. So there's an activist in Canada, someone has reported him to the Iranian authorities and then in Iran a family member has been arrested in one, one of our cases. Yes, it's in British Columbia. Wow, yeah. wow. Yeah, that's a British Columbia, and um, 
the person making the threat is also in British Columbia. Wow. And how does that make you feel? Extremely frustrating because it's the story is very sad because this is, is um, the, I, I can't get into the details, but it's a very close family member that is very dear to this person. And so, um, you know, I feel really bad for him. He doesn't still doesn't know where that family member is. Iranian-Canadian human rights activist Sushant Zanganapur has started an online petition asking the prime minister to designate the IRGC as a terrorist entity, seize assets and deport IRGC officials and their families. Demanding certain things uh, happen that are currently not happening, that keep Canada a safe haven for uh, these perpetrators of human rights abuses. This can change the direction of this revolution to be much more in favor of the people. That's why we do what we do. We have brought in some of the strongest sanctions in the world against the Iranian regime, and we also listed them under some of the strongest provisions available to Canada. We can organize so many rallies. We can go and march and, you know, voice our concerns so many times. We'll continue doing so, but that has to lead to somewhere. When we bring out 30,000 people into the streets of Vancouver, we're hoping that the Canadian government sees this and says, this is a significant political demand. People want more. Nagar Moshahedi, Global News. Coming up next, lessons in decriminalization. The West Coast is reeling from fentanyl. And so we're all in this epidemic together. What Vancouver can learn from the Oregon experiment. Also ahead, the new clinic slated for Chinatown that has residents and businesses pushing back. Traffic is looking good in both directions at the Alex Fraser Bridge tonight with just a bit of leftover volume on the east-west connector between Knight and the S-curve. Through a charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Some businesses and residents in Chinatown are pushing back against a proposed methadone clinic for the neighborhood, concerned the facility will hurt the already struggling community. Advocates for it say the reaction is overblown and it could be a win-win for Chinatown and the downtown east side. Kristen Robinson reports. A small but vocal group voicing their opposition to what they've been told is a planned methadone clinic in this vacant Main Street storefront. I was quite shocked, to be honest, uh, you know, that there was no public hearing. No notice. Leading the protest, David Wong, who runs the pharmacy next door, in a space shared with a family doctor clinic. Like the half dozen pharmacies in Chinatown, Wong serves mainly seniors. To his knowledge, no one dispenses methadone here, and the heart of Chinatown, he says, is not the right location. For the patients, you know, that come here, I have concerns for their safeties. The city approved a development permit in late November for the new operator of 523 Main. No notice was required because there was no change from its previous use as a health care office with a small-scale pharmacy. The College of Pharmacists regulates what can be sold or dispensed. I mean, we're not against the methadone, right, and the concept. Um, but I think that, you know, a different place and time would make sense. As Chinatown struggles with social disorder, the BIA says it's not an appropriate business for the heritage area. So a lot of inquiries on the, on the vacant stores for cannabis stores, methadone clinics, pharmacies, because it's quite profitable. And, uh, you know, but 
you know, if we were trying to revitalize Chinatown. This space on East Pender still for lease after the city refused an application for a cannabis store last year. But not everyone is opposed. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, like not in my backyard syndrome that they seem to have. And uh, it's just very ignorant. And it, it could, ha it could be their son or daughter or their, their mom or whoever that could get addicted to opiates and, and need this help. When did we become such uh, a fearful society? Guy Felicella believes a methadone dispensary could help Chinatown coexist with its downtown east side neighbors. Uh, people that are going to come here, they're not going to hang out here all day. They're going to come here, access their health care like they would any other place, and then go about their day. Uh, this is a, a substance that gets people stable and off the illicit drug supply. The city says the pharmacist involved is in good standing with the college and the proposed use fits with current zoning. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Well, as BC draws closer to January 31st of next year, when possession of some hard drugs will be decriminalized, a U.S. state that has already taken that step might provide some warning signs and some advice. Paul Johnson has part two of our focus on Oregon's experience nearly two years into its decriminalization program. A lot of people tell me it's a lawless city. As if to illustrate her point, as we were setting up to interview Portland News reporter Blair Best about her experiences covering homelessness and addiction. Right across the street from her TV station, someone was in a tent doing drugs. Since Measure 110 passed about two years ago, businesses all across Portland, I would say, have seen a significant increase in the amount of drug use right outside their front door. Oregon's decriminalization law was intended to help people struggling with addiction by offering treatment instead of jail. Well, several thousand so far have apparently avoided the stigma of criminality. The effects of untreated addiction are still an ongoing burden on everyone. Tent encampments are still scattered throughout Portland's downtown core. We've seen an increase in the number of people dying from drug overdoses. Oregon's path to decriminalization was different than B.C.'s. Down here, a majority of voters approved it in a statewide referendum. And that reflects a belief that's pretty widespread down here, that addiction is better handled through the medical system than the criminal justice system. Wound up getting addicted to prescription pain pills, Oxycontins, and then heroin, and was homeless for a while. It's really bad. Clean for 10 years now. Tony Vezina is an advisor on the state's drug policy. While he says the new law is a sound first step, he also thinks governments wanting to do decrim need to go hard on prevention and compelling some users to get treatment. If you have somebody like me, who is on the streets um, using heroin committing crimes, like to some degree I needed to be intervened on so that I could stop. Though the Oregon model appears to have delivered uneven results. Supporters say it's way too soon to pass judgment on something as complex as addiction. Tara Hurst is helping to build out the recovery services that are getting new funding under the law money that's just now starting to be spent in a serious way. Decriminalization, I think, is a really big part of that destigmatization, which is also ultimately saving lives. In Portland, Paul Johnson, Global News. More troubling allegations involving Canada's national sports. That even the few kids of color that are playing are, are being treated in this type of manner. 
The shocking number of incidents of on-ice discrimination, according to new data from Hockey Canada. And coming up in sports, practicing for perfection. Why the Vancouver College Fighting Irish have so much to play for tomorrow. A disturbing new report from Hockey Canada is shedding light on just how prevalent racism and discrimination are in the ice, on the ice, and in the locker room in grassroots hockey. As Kyle Benning reports, the sport's top body says last season alone, more than 900 alleged incidents of discrimination were documented. Canada's game has received another rude awakening. New data from Hockey Canada shows there were more than 900 documented or alleged incidents of discrimination during the 2021-22 season. That includes verbal taunts, insults and intimidation. Of the cases, more than 500 were called penalties on the ice and more than 400 were reports of alleged discrimination. For the penalties, more than 60% were in regards to someone's sexual orientation or gender identity, about 20% were about race, and more than 10% were about a disability. About 50% of the 400 alleged discrimination instances were about race, and 40% about sexual orientation or gender identity. Sports inclusion experts say this shows the need for social education within the game. It's got to be repeated, it's got to be updated, uh, it's got to be rolled out in consultation with uh, those affected. And those trying to make changes say this is part of systemic issues within competitive sports. Organizations like You Can Play try to make sports more inclusive, particularly for the LGBTQ plus community. But it says change ultimately needs to happen from the inside. I don't want to be pushing and dragging you up this hill and, and having it be this extreme challenge. Hockey Canada established a rule to report these stats in August 2021 to deal with discrimination within the sport. This comes following calls for the body to be more transparent following a string of scandals. But organizations say reports like these highlight how hockey culture needs a shift. The Hockey Diversity Alliance says given how few families of colour choose to put their kids into hockey, it is concerned at the number of race-based incidents taking place. That even the few kids of color that are playing are, are being treated in this type of manner. Hockey Canada says these cases do not reflect what takes place off the ice. It says it will tally these incidences for two more seasons and find ways to address maltreatment in the sport. Kyle Benning, Global News. All right, let's bring in meteorologist Christy Gordon once again with a look at that forecast. And we saw, like, Chris and I were downtown earlier today, and we saw snow struggling to, <laughs> to, to really take hold in to downtown. Stick. Yeah, it wasn't, and it, it didn't seem to last long, but some places on the island got a ton. Yeah, and it really depends on where you are, and we're still expecting some snowfall here, but again, it's going to be a mix of rain and snow. And I, you know, I was just talking to our director about how, uh, you know, one of the reasons why so many people got on the road um, the other night when we had such a major snowstorm is because we can get snowfall bus. And basically, that's sort of what we have seen so far today, although we still have the potential of a mix of rain and snow as the band makes its way in. Uh, so that's why, you know, I really try and highlight in advance whether we have a good handle on a snowstorm or not. We 
we knew that that last snowstorm was going to happen. This one, I've always been saying all the way along, there's a lot of uncertainty with this one. And there you go, everyone. All right, uh, let's have a look at how cold it is in the interior. Yes, wind chills down to minus 36 across the northern regions. Bundle up, it is not going to warm up for the next few days. We have seen a warm up across the south coast. Moisture is starting to push in, but again, it's going to be a mixed bag. Areas away from the water across Vancouver Island, though, are starting to see snowfall, and I'll show you some of those images here. Uh, so starting off with a look at Nanaimo, you can see snow falling, but it is very wet on the roads. Uh, Malahat, that's a similar case where snow is falling, but it's very wet on the roads. Whereas further... Um What's this next one? Oh yeah, Port Alberni, so the high, Highway 4, where it is much colder away from the water, there are certainly seeing snowfalls. So that's the potential as we continue, but it's all going to push out overnight. We're expecting a clearing sky and sunshine on the way for our region tomorrow, but it is going to be cold. Now for Metro Vancouver, we'll likely see highs reach about 5 degrees tomorrow, uh, so we are going to see sort of milder conditions, although that is below seasonal for this time of year. But uh, Sunday and Monday, we're going to continue with this Arctic air and temperatures will drop. So we're talking about highs of only two degrees. Bundle up all across the province over the next couple of days. The next chance of snowfall is not until the afternoon hours on Tuesday. Um, so we've got a few days to make up for. Oh my goodness, that's a very loud truck going by. Um, so we've got a few days to hone in on the details about the Friday, uh, th sorry, Tuesday forecast. Uh, there's your tonight center windows weather window. There was a beautiful sun dog that was spotted all across uh, Prince George yesterday as the sun was setting. Thank you so much to Jewel for sharing that one with us. Back to you guys. F extraterrestrial. Thank you, Christy. A jewel in the sky, mm -hmm. as it were. Okay, Squire is here with a look ahead to sports. Yes, and because of Thatcher Demko's injury last night, Spencer Martin is the Canucks' number one goalie until further notice, and he's not freaked out by that. You know, I don't think of myself as a backup starter or call-up whenever I'm in the net. I just think of myself as the goalie in that particular game. Well, this is where the injury happened last night against Florida. The Canucks aren't saying what it is yet, but it certainly didn't look good when Demko left the ice. Also tonight, satellite debris. So cute, you won't be able to stand it. Hmm. <laughs> A lot of concern for Thatcher Demko after that injury the other night. Well, yeah, and uh, there should be concern for the way the Canucks played as well in front of him. Uh, and their fortunes, the Canucks' fortunes against Florida last night, they lost 5 to 1, were altered dramatically in 59 seconds in the first period. During that time frame, Florida scored three goals and Thatcher Demko suffered an injury to his upper right side that looks rather serious. But at the moment, the Vancouver Canucks aren't saying exactly what it is that Demko hurt. They said he was going to see a doctor around 5 o'clock today. We should know more about things tomorrow. They've had to call up goalie Colin Delia from Abbotsford to be the backup for Spencer Martin, who is now the de facto number one. Both Martin and Bruce Boudreaux spoke about the Demko injury situation this morning with Boudreaux hoping against hope that Demko's doctor visit will provide good news for Vancouver. I mean, my, my concern is just the way he came off the ice. It's like everybody else is watching. It didn't look good, but I mean, uh, uh, you know, sometimes you get lucky and it's really sore, whatever it is, for a day, and then, you know, it's, you're out a week and then you're back at it. So that's what, that's what the hope is. Yeah, I think, like like you said, I've been getting some reps already, getting some minutes to start the year. So uh, if the minutes do go up, I still don't know what the exact situation is, but uh, I feel like I'm ready.
It looked bad for South Korea at the World Cup today, their final game in group stage. And then, in injury time, this. Huang Hee Chan with the goal that sends them to the knockout round. Great pass from Sung Hyung Min of Tottenham. 2-1 final over Portugal. So Uruguay had to score at least three to get in ahead of South Korea. They couldn't do it, and Luis Suarez couldn't look anymore. In tears. Inconsolable. Uh, Brazil lost, but they advance. Uh, Switzerland moves on at Serbia's expense. There you see the South Korea win, and Uruguay won, but um, they do not get to the knockout round, which starts tomorrow. Uh, Nathan Rourke's NFL audition started today. He met with the Las Vegas Raiders. The Raiders' current backup is Jarrett Stidham, who uh, was originally drafted by New England but didn't really impress Bill Belichick enough to stay beyond two years. Rourke has something a lot of NFL teams are going to like, and that's the fact he has the, the ability to see the field in front of him and see what's unfolding without panicking. After the uh, Raiders... Reports say that Rourke will get to work out for Indianapolis, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Maybe he'll back up Brady if he keeps playing. Minnesota Vikings are interested. It might be good for the Seahawks to take a look at Nathan Rourke as well. Uh, tomorrow at BC Play Stadium, it's a big day for BC school football. There will be loads of championship games from grade 8 all the way up to the AAA final, which is between GW Graham, the Grizzlies of Chilliwack, and the Vancouver College Fighting Irish, which are heading into this championship game undefeated, and that includes a win, a close win, over GW Graham. It's been another dominant season for the Vancouver College Fighting Irish. The guys in purple have yet to lose in 11 games, outscoring the opposition 350 to 92. They just need to beat GW Graham of Chilliwack in Saturday's championship game to cap a perfect season. Last year, they were in a similar position, unbeaten and top-ranked after the regular season, but were upset in the quarterfinals. I would say for the seniors this year, they're really motivated because, you know, you never want something like that to happen again. I think that's kind of fueled us this year, so hopefully we can get the job done. We've gone through some of that film just to remind the boys that feeling. So you don't ever want to feel that again. In order to do that, it's to go out there and perform and leave it all in the field. Brian Chu was an assistant coach last year. This year, he's the new head coach. He was a seven-time CFL All-Star offensive lineman and two-time Grey Cup champion in 13 standout seasons with the Montreal Alouettes. And now he's bringing that pro mentality to Van College. The most rewarding thing for me is coming back home. Uh, this is where I went to school. This is, I've had a lot of memories on O'Hagan Field and to be able to give back to our boys and just to see their smiles. It's about the relationships you build here and uh, to me that's what that field is. That's the best classroom in the field in this whole school. Ever since he's come in he's, he's held us to a high standard and um, made this program as pros and handled us as pros so um, just his uh, experience and the coaching staff behind him they've done a great job to get us to where we are today. Part of becoming a champion is giving your best performance when it matters most, something Brian Chu knows all about. The boys are going to be even keeled, they're going to be balanced, they're ready, they're ready for this big moment. Um, since back in February, all those hours of work we put in, it's, this is the pinnacle of it all and uh, the biggest thing for me is to make sure they're controlling their emotions and go out there and just do what they do. They've been a great football school for a long time. L.A. Chargers defensive lineman Christian Covington is an alumni of Vancouver College.
That's right. Good luck to everybody playing out on that uh, field tomorrow. It's going to be fun at BC Place. All right. Don't go away. Satellite debris coming up next. Jordan Armstrong is here now with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11. Jordan? Chris, talk about a frustrating Friday for BC Ferries. First, the accidental anchor drop, and now it is slow going to Bowen. Tonight, the only way to get to Bowen Island from Horseshoe Bay is via 12-person water taxi. The 457-person ferry is tied up, not going anywhere, because BC Ferries can't find enough staff to operate the vessel. 14 sailings are cancelled. We'll hear from passengers at 11. Plus, one year after the death of Delta teen Micah Blom, a man she knew is facing charges. The details tonight. Chris? All right, we'll tune in then. Thanks very much, Jordan. How festive it looks behind me. It is really. Yes. It's Christmas has arrived. And there's gifts. It's this like one's for you, Santa. Sophie. For, this one is your me? name on it. Yeah, should I shake it? Well, what if it's fragile? <laughs> Don't break it. No, I think it's a paper I know clip. what it is. I know what it is. A Rubik's Cube. No, no. Oh. Much, it sounds like a paper clip, but Did probably you a nice one? paper clip. <laughs> no, one side maybe if I peel the stickers off. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good idea. Okay. All right, let's well, do it. Well, since we're in the, uh, the Christmas mood, let's have a Christmas commercial, shall we? Don't think that's that. <laughs> nope. Okay, we gotta move quickly apparently. Uh, this is an old favorite. Uh, you'll see what I mean. Here we go.
show on ice. Coming next month. Very cute. Okay, uh, last but not least, again, two old favorites from uh, Wait Rose, uh, both Christmas commercials. Okay, three. Off to you. Shame if it went to waste. Oh, um, yeah. Turkey's ready. Ooh, turkey. Simon. Yeah? Could you pass us the sprouts? <laughs> yep. Please join us after our final number for some chocolate and cherry mince pies. Oh, I must say, I, I thought you played that really well, Jill. I did, didn't I? Mm. Oh, yes. Maybe that's what's in there. I hope so. Mince pie. Yeah. We'll say Janie's got some Christmas cake going in the in the cupboard. Bring it. We'll bring it at some point later in the season. Quick word on the weather, Christy. Sure, well, we're still waiting for this band of moisture. It may not push in, but if it does, mix of rain and snow, snow all over the case, but um, or all over the place, but it will ease off overnight. All right, be careful out there. Have a great weekend, everybody. Have a good night, all.